The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Away, rolling river. The red man's camp lies on her borders. Away, we're bound away across the wide Missouri. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, I will be continuing my look at Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick. In the previous episode, we looked at the first 100 pages or so, and we talked about how Despite this novel not being very long, Melville takes a very, very long time getting going with it. He spends a lot of time dwelling on the motivations that draw people into, into life at the sea. He spends a lot of time talking about the entomology and the different cultural and literary representations of whales. He devotes about 10 pages to a sermon about Jonah and the whale and that story at a, at a sailor's chapel. And much of the first 100 pages focus on the relationship, the emerging relationship between our narrator, Ishmael, and the harpoonist, Queequeg, who meet at a sailor's inn before signing on to, to a ship. We also talked about the pay structure on the ship that they sign up with. This would be Ahab's ship, but it's owned by a couple of former captains named Peleg and Bildeg. And they, they pay, as whaling ships tended to do, paid on a, on a proportion of the profits. So Ishmael is signs on at the, one, at the 300th lay, meaning he will take home at the end of the voyage one 300th of the total profits of, of the voyage. And we talked about how the first part of this novel is really about the crew and not so much about Ahab or the white woman in particular, although there are foreshadowings and, and suggestions of the whale theme throughout the first part there seems to be much more conventional say there's narrative that we're used to seeing from herman melville a novel about sailors being sailors and going on different kinds of uh adventures at sea right he doesn't romanticize them of course but you know when you first read this it, it kind of fits nicely alongside redburn and white jacket in that Redburn was about a merchant ship, White Jacket about a naval ship, and then Moby Dick about a whaler. It's only when we start getting closer to the midway point of the novel that we realize that this, this story is doing something very different than the previous, much more realistic accounts. So in this episode, I'll be looking at chapters uh, 17 through 40, which is quite a lot of chapters, but many of them are, some, are very small, probably about seven, eight of those are, are literally just one page chapters. And what happens here? Well, we're introduced to the rest of the crew of the ship, its command structure. We're, we are met, introduced briefly to Ahab, but he spends much of the first part of the novel as kind of a ghost, just walking around the, the ship. And then the climax of this part of the novel is when Ahab declares that his real mission and his real purpose with this ship is to hunt the white whale Moby Dick, the whale who he blames for the loss of his, loss of his leg. So we kind of make the transition from being a story about a crew, a diverse crew, an international crew, to, to one about the, the revenge plot line that will dominate so much of, of the story. So that's where we're going to get in, in this episode. But um, 
Yeah, so let's just let's just see where we pick up with we pick up with chapter seventeen, the chapter called the Ramadan, and this is actually uh, another religious experience of of Queequeg, who Ishmael has been spending his time with since arriving in New Bedford, and as he's preparing to go on the ship, Queequeg, of course, as a harpoonist, gets a much higher salary than than Ishmael does as just a, a regular sailor. Uh, but they are good friends, and and once again he thinks should he participate in the religious experiences of this pagan, of this of this heathen, and he agrees to do this. Quote: I say we good Presbyterian Christians should be charitable in these things and do not fancy ourselves so vastly superior to other mortals, pagans, and whatnot because of their half crazy conceits on these subjects. There is Queequeg now, certainly entertaining the most absurd notions about Yojo and his Ramadan. But what of it? Queequeg thought he knew what he was about, I suppose. He seemed very content, and therefore let him rest. All of our arguing with him would no, be of no avail. Let him be, I say it, and heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we all somehow, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. This generous, open-minded religious viewpoint he had expressed before when he saw Queequeg worshiping this idol, and he participated in that as well, basically on the principle of do unto others as you would have them do under you, under you. And so we get this uh, a call for kind of an international brotherhood of man, of working people, in contrast to the rigid divisions that the, that the hierarchy and the, the missionary class and the people like that would establish between the quote-unquote pagans and, and the Christians. And then this section ends with a, with a general critique of, of religion. Because there's a scene actually where Quickway kind of goes into this this trance, and this kind of freaks out Ishmael, and he actually has to call for help and things. And then this leads to Ishmael beginning to form a bit of a critique of religion. Like religion's fine, but when it draws people into these weird states, then it's it's something perhaps a bit dangerous, right? And I think we can we can see, of course, the the kind of mad. Uh, passions that that revenge drives Ahab to in the novel as as being kind of a, a suggestion of the same type of thing that this this elevated mental state is something that's a bit dangerous the next scene is Quequake signing on to the the ship oh, it says here it's the the 90th lay and that's more than it was ever given to any harpooner he says so I say I said the 70th before but but here it's it's the 90th. That's what he signs as, and Quig makes his mark, signs his mark, and then after that, there's actually kind of a almost a quasi-religious ritual in which they he has to well, it's Captain Bildag, one of the owners of the ship, who has him kind of vow his loyalty to to the ship, and especially warning him against kind of his pagan ways it seems captain bildag has some anxieties about bringing a, a pagan onto the ship so once again religious be, religion becomes a part of of the backdrop here of of, of Quique's role especially in the early part of the story chapter 19 is called the prophet and here we actually have a, a warning being issued up to to ishmael and Queequeg about Captain Ahab, a specific warning that Ahab, there's something off about him. And here's what the, the man says. That's true, that's true, yes, both true enough, but you must jump when he gives an order. Step and growl, growl and go. That's the word with Captain Ahab. 
but nothing about that thing has happened to him off the Cape long ago when he lay like dead for three days and nights. Nothing about that deadly skirmish with the Spaniard before the altar in Santa. Heard nothing about that, eh? Nothing about the silver calabash he spat into, and nothing about his losing his leg last voyage, according to the prophecy. Didn't you hear a word about the matters and something more, eh? No, I don't think he did. How could you? Who knows it? Not Nantucket, I guess, but how's ever mayhaps you've heard tell about that leg and how he lost it, I you have heard of that, I dare say. Oh yes. Every, and everyone knows almost, I mean, that they know he's only one leg and that Parmacetti took off the other one. End quote. So that that's the first uh hint reference we have to uh him losing his leg due to a whale, right? That's what the spermaceti or the parmaceti is. It's it's the type of uh, type of whale, and we'll get to the taxonomy of whales in in a future chapter. Um, so that's that's Elijah who's giving this warning. He gives more warnings later on in chapter twenty one, but chapters twenty twenty one up to twenty two are all about basically getting the ship ready to go, and there are uh, a bunch of scenes of people getting on the ship and everything getting ready to go and then the ship ends eventually departs on christmas day and that's the the focus on on page uh chapter 22 we see bildeg and pella give their farewells and their final orders and by this point we still basically haven't seen captain aap he's he's not on scene everything is happening without his oversight or direction he's he's still hidden from us all we've heard about him are the rumors and the suggestions about him from from Peleg and Bildag and, and more directly from, from Elijah, this this prophet who warns them of, of what what Ahab might be a little off in the head. That he might be a little off in the head. So there we have it. We're about, by this point, a little, not quite a quarter of the way through the book, but, but getting close to it. And we're just now sailing off into, into the sea. And that's just the nature of this book. It's it's a, a bit of a slow burn, but it's, again, it's not very long of a text. I, I, and I know when you get this in high school, it feels long and thick. But uh, compared to a lot of other novels we've been been looking at, it's not you know excessively long. Um, maybe just a little bit on the you know you know six hundred pages, I guess, is, is longer than most. But it's not super long. It's not a Stephen King book, right? With the ship well on its way, um, then Ishmael takes an aside, and th this is an old Melville thing where he'll they have a story and then he'll do an aside. And he did that all the way back in Taipei, and he's still doing it here. Marty kind of internalizes those asides by making them part of the story, right, as they go island to island. Uh, you had that in White Jacket, certainly a lot. You had it in Redburn as well. Here, in chapters 24 and, and 25, we get a formal defense of whaling. And there's a chapter called The Advocate, and where Ishmael takes on this role of, of basically being a, a defender of, of the whaler and the whaling and the industry and its, and its role. And, and this defense is rather elaborate. It takes on many different parts of the critique of whaling, I guess. Part of it is he wants to emphasize the bravery of this. In a previous chapter, he sort of referred to this as well, that like unlike other sailors, merchant sailors were just bridges, uh, military sailors, which are just like extensions of the army. These are extensions of land concerns, right? You make stuff in New York and you sell it in Liverpool. You need someone to get you across there, but it's not really about the water, 
right? That is really whalers who are purely of the sea. They're the ones who get their, their income, their livelihood from the sea itself, which is what something other sailors don't really do. And that makes them a very, very special kind. Um, but this defense in chapter 24, this defense of whaling takes on many different aspects of it. One part of it is, you know, that it seemed kind of brutal, right? That it's, it's this mass slaughter and this mass endless slaughter. And, you know, he sees it more in terms of bravery here. Um, quote, quote, doubtless one reason why the world declines honoring us whalemen is this. They think that at best our, vac our vocation amounts to a butchering sort of business and that when actively engaged therein, we're thrown by all manner of defilements. Butchers we are, that is true, but butchers also. And butchers of the bloodiest badge have been all martial commanders whom the world invariably delights to honor. And as for the matter of the alleged uncleanliness of our business, ye shall soon be initiated into certain facts hitherto pretty generally unknown, that which upon the whole will triumphantly plant the sperm whale ship as, as at least among the cleanliest things of this tidy earth. But even granting the question, the charging question be true, what disordered slippery decks of a whale ship are compared to the unspeakable carrying of those battlefields, from which so many soldiers return to drink all the ladies' plaudits? And if the idea of peril so much enhances the popular conceit of a soldier's profession, let me assure you that many a veteran who has freely marched to a battery will quickly recoil at the apparition of the sperm whale's fast tail, fanning the eddies of the air over his head. End quote. So there's a lot in here, but one is like the military is much more brutal, slaughtering human beings while we're slaughtering whales. And it's, it's risky. Right? And, you know, a lot of work is very risky and life-threatening and doesn't get appreciated as such, right? Like building skyscrapers and building buildings, uh, washing windows. This is all risky work that, that people engage in all the time. It doesn't really get honored the same way like a cop or a soldier, even though they're less likely to die on their job than, than a lot of other workers or workers have to breathe in toxic fumes in the coal mines. So I think this part of his defense is fairly well taken, at least on the terms of bravery. I, I do have kind of environmentalist uh, side to me and I'm a vegetarian so so I, you know I can't help but see something pretty brutal about the whole act of whaling and you know people who still eat and, and hunt whales now are, are pretty despicable to me in the 19th century it was a very different world very different values about about whales and whaling and it was a very different economy it, it you know there's much more dependent on whaling in those days for for just lighting the streets you know, we, the world was much more connected to the sea in this way. And then he gets into a little bit of a historical argument about the investment in whaling and the honor and glory of whaling fleets in the past. He goes back to Louis, to the Dutch, to Louis the Fourteenth, no, Louis the Sixteenth. He goes back to the British and the whaling of, of various points in history. It's kind of fascinating, and we're. He, he thinks this, this population of people is, they have a, a unique position in the world. Like he talks about Nantucket as being kind of an empire on its own, commanding the seas, commanding a space much larger than any land empire. But he also sees it as having this kind of deep history and this, this, there's a genealogy here that goes way, way back. And that's when you reread like the, the extracts at the beginning of the book where he goes back to the Bible literally and, and sees what had people said about whaling and whales since like the beginning of time. And you're reminded that, yes, this was, a, there was a long history here. It wasn't just a new 19th century industry.
But anyways, he'll go point by point and make his formal defense of, of whaling as being dignified, as being heroic and brave, of having a history, of being inspirational, respectable, and, and other ways. So he kind of goes through all the major criticism of the whaling industry and, and undermines uh, the, those positions. Um, then on chapter 26 and 27 and 28, we, we, we're introduced to the, the hierarchy of the ship. In, in a more formal way. And that's going to be much of what else I need to talk about today before we get to Ahab's great speech. It's, it's about what is the command structure of the ship and a whaling ship? Where does everyone fit into this? It's a very hierarchical relationship and everyone has their place. And those, those positions are enforced in a variety of ways, whether it's how they sit at the table or the way Ahab interacts with the mates or the way the mates interact with the harpoonist, even how the mates have different ships, different boats that go out hunting. When they, when they hunt the whale, right, they go out in boats and each boat has a mate and each boat has a harpoonist and other helpers. But these are ranked and everything is very, very strict and, and hierarchical. And this is something Melville comes back to a lot. And there's a tension here between the kind of the collectivity, the, the common humanity expressed in the Ishmael Queequeg relationship and the realities of these these hierarchies. He he's talked about this throughout all his other works too, but I think he's a little bit more elegant in the way he does it here, especially when he gets to the uh, the story of the the town hall, which I think we'll talk about in the next episode. Okay, so he's got two chapters, twenty six and twenty seven, both with the same name, knights and squires, and we meet the three mates, uh, the three people under Ahab first. And these are the knights, right? So if you think of Ahab as the king, we have three knights, and each knight has squires, and those are the harpoonists, right? So the chief mate is Starbuck. Right, so Starbuck is the reflection of practical capitalism. He's lost family members at Whaling before. He's kind of, it's part of his life, but he's just a very hard-headed Quaker, and he sees Whaling as a business, and the goal of the Pequot is to make as much money as possible. He's the one later on who's going to, you know, jump into the whale carcass and try to get the ambergris out because that's the most valuable part of the, of the whale. So he's willing to get his hands dirty for profit. He's willing to do horrible things and be brutal for profit. But he's the number one, I guess, antagonist to Ahab's goal of, of making this a revenge mission. Quote, Starbuck was no crusader after perils. In him, courage was not a sentiment, but a thing simply useful to him. And now he's at hand upon all morally practical occasions. Besides, he thought, perhaps that it is the business of whaling courage with one of the great staple outfits of the ship, like her beef and her bread, not to be foolishly wasted. Wherefore, he had no fancy, no fancy of lowering for whales after sundown, nor for pressing and fighting a fish that, much too, that too much persisted in fighting him. Forethought, Starbuck, I am here in this critical ocean to kill whales for my living and not to be killed by them for theirs. And that hundreds of men have been so killed, Starbuck well knew. What doom was his own father's? Where in the bottomless depths uh, could he find the torn limbs of his brother? So his courage, he's brave, but his bravery has a certain practicality to it, right? Bravery only as far as it will, and it will lead into the results of, of a profitable voyage. And so he is a really good contrast to, to Ahab, who has different ideas in his head about what they're doing there at sea. So the next mate, the second mate was Stubb. Stubb's from Cape Cod. He's a happy-go-lucky guy. He's, he's kind of laughing all the time. He's not particularly valiant or cowardly. 
he does his duty, but he's just more carefree and doesn't really, and a bit careless, actually. Um, but, you know, he doesn't have that kind of hard-mindedness of, of Starbuck. He's most identifiable because he always has a pipe. Um, then the third mate is Flask. He's from Martha's Vineyard. So these are all islanders. These are all people who have grown up by the sea and, and lived it their entire life. He is, Flask is short. He's the, he's presented here as someone who has a bit of a vendetta perhaps against whales, but he doesn't fully see them as, as dangerous. He he said he compares them a bit to rats. Water rats require, quote, requiring only a little circumvention and some small application of time and trouble in order to kill and boil. This ignorant, unconscious fearlessness of his made him a little waggish in the matter of whales that followed these fish for the fun of it. And the three years around Cape Horn was only a jolly joke that lasted that length of time. So these are the three mates that we're introduced to. Now they each have, they each command one of the Pequod's boats that go out when the, when they catch when they see the whales they go out and hunt them and each of those has a harpoonist a, a head harpoonist uh, now for starbuck it's queequeg who we already know about and for stubs it's tashtigo now tashtigo is an indian from martha's vineyard he's so he's kind of an indian remnant from an area where the genocide of native americans has already taken place and he's actually described as a remnant part of a remnant population of Indians who who live there. Then we have Dagu. He's the harpoonist for Flask's ship. And he's an he's an African. Right. So we have with the three harpoonists this international working class, right? The Pacific Islander, the Native American, and the African. Right? All element populations that have been exploited by American capitalism over over its history, right? And of course, you have the rest of the crew too, which is also international, made up of Europeans and, and Americans from all over the place. But there's this focus on these three harpoonists, all all colored, I guess is the right word, all racialized under the American ideology of the time. So there, it's on their backs that the American industrial economy, depending on whale oil, functioned. Now, it's only after talking to, after these two chapters introducing the knights and their squires that we're finally introduced to, to Ahab. Ishmael doesn't even see Ahab for a few days after leaving Nantucket. Uh, and he finally does see him, and, and he's still kind of almost ghost-like. He's just something passing through. We don't hear him say anything. He's just sort of there. Uh, he's going to have an encounter later on with Stubbs which is, is going to be rather important. But from Ishmael's point of view, uh, Ahab is, is almost godlike. He's beyond the day-to-day the -day of the ship. Here's what Melville writes. I was struck with the singular posture he maintained. Upon each side of the Pequod's quarter deck and pretty close to the mizzen shrubs, there was an auger hole bored about half an inch or so into the plank. His bone legs steadied in that hole, one arm elevated and holding by the shroud. Captain Ahab stood erect looking straight out beyond the ship's ever-pitching prow. There was an infinity of firmest fortitude, a determinate, unsurrenderable willfulness in that fixed, fearless, forward dedication to the eyes. Not a word he spoke, nor did his officers say aught to him, though by their minutest gestures and expressions they plainly showed the uneasy, if not painful, consciousness of being under a troubled master eye. 
And not only that, but a moody stricken Ahab stood before them with the crucifixion in his face in all the nameless, regal, overbearing dignity of some mighty woe. Ere long before he first visits in the air, he withdrew into his cabin. But after that morning, he was every day visible to the crew, either standing in his pivot hole or seated upon an ivory stool he had or heavily walking on deck. So he's, he's not engaging with the crew in any way. And we sort of see that before. I mean, the Commodore in White Jacket is sort of described in the same terms. If you remember when Redburn tries to interact with the captain, he's scolded and humiliated for that, that there, there is a distance between the captain and the crew, and that's by design. Um, but, of course, Ahab is such a distinctive character in, in American literature. He's more memorable. And, and there's a lot of time spent here talking about that distance between the crew and, and Ahab. Now, in chapters 29 to 31, we get a little encounter between Stubbs and, and Ahab. Where Ahab begins to talk down to Stubbs and... Stubbs is horribly humiliated by this this interaction. It adds to the mystery of of Ahab and his persona and his authoritarian personality, I guess. Now I think all Stubbs did is is kind of comment on Ahab just walking around like a dictator, walking back and forth and pacing and and out of this Ahab just kind of freaks out on Stubbs, calls him a, you know, all kinds of names, you know, kind of kicks at him with his wooden leg it's it's a very very dramatic and powerful scene and it it kind of shatters Stubbs actually Stubbs can't get this out of his head for you know for a long time and it's going to bear with him for the next couple chapters and it's a little bit unclear if Ahab kicks him or not but Stubbs starts to get into his head that that Ahab did kick him with that that wooden leg of his that or I guess it's a whalebone leg maybe in chapter 30, we get the first, uh, I guess, uh, the first internal reflection from, from Ahab's point of view. And it's a very short chapter. It's less than a page in length. And now Stubbs is already identified as the one who we always see smoking or the one with the pipe in his hand. But here we have Ahab smoking. And, and it's worth reading this whole thing. It's not going to be the first time, though, that or the last time where Ahab throws away a technology that, that seems useful because he, he deems it not necessary for his quest. There's going to be a scene later on with the compass, which is going to be very important. I'll, I'll get to that when I get to it much later in the novel. But here, this, this kind of reckless throwing away of something of value, uh, because it's deemed not helpful, is, is something that's going to be part of Ahab's personality. Um, quote, in old Norse times, the thrones of the sea-loving Danish kings were fabricated, saints tradition, and the tusks of the narwhal. How could one look at Ahab then seated in the tripod of bones without bethinking him of royalty it symbolized? For a Khan was of the plank, and a king of the sea, and a great lord of Leviathans was Ahab. Some moments passed during which the thick vapor came from his mouth in quick and constant puffs, which blew back against his face. How now? He solemnized at last with withdrawing the tube. This smoking no longer sues. Oh, my pipe, hard must he go with me if thy charm is gone. Here have I been unconsciously toiling, not pleasuring. I, and ignorantly smoking to with windward all that while, to windward, and with such nervous whiffs, as if, like the dying whale, my final jets were the strongest and fullest of trouble. What business have I with this pipe, the thing that is meant for 
sereneness to send up mild white vapors among mild white airs, not among the torn iron-gray locks like mine. I'll smoke no more. And then he throws the, the pipe overboard. So it's, it doesn't fit the soothingness, the sereneness, the meditative nature of smoking, something Melville comes back to a lot in his other works, the, the, the collective experience of smoking, something that's often shared by the working class for Ahab has no use for it. Um, and again, we're, we're getting hints here that there's something really off about this, this king. He blows up at Stubbs. He throws out a pipe because it's too relaxing and too, too pleasant. Um, so there's, there's, he's, he's, he's obviously a bit off. Then we have Queen Mab. Um, this it turns out is a reference to Romeo and Juliet. And Stubbs goes to talk to Flask. And he's still kind of living up this encounter he had with Ahab before. And he says he dreamed that Ahab kicked him with his with his leg, his peg leg, right? And Flask's opinion is essentially that, you know, it's almost honorable that, that Ahab's such a great man that you should be glad that he tried to kick you. He says, for instance, um, why Stubb? What do you have to complain of? Didn't he kick you right goodwill? It wasn't a common pitch pine leg he kicked you with. No, you were kicked by a great man with a beautiful ivory leg stuff. It's an honor. Consider it an honor. So that's, that's it. And that, 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 that kind of theme comes to the end. The chapter ends, though, with Ahab basically saying, we're, we're getting to work now. Look out for whales. And um, the story of the novel actually begins. We, we, we hope the action begins. But first, Melville gives us another aside. This is chapter 32 called Cetology, which is a, a long description of the taxonomy of whales. And I don't know, you can read, it's fun to read. There's not much to actually say about it, it seems to me. We, we're, I'm reminded, of course, of the extracts at the beginning, this kind of scientific documentation of interpretations of whaling. Here we actually have Ishmael talking about the whales. Uh, now, he disagrees with, I think it's Linnaeus, who classified the whale as a mammal. Uh, he, Ishmael is convinced that the whale should be studied and understood as a fish. So he, he, he basically has three types of species of whales or three different subgroups. He calls them like books. Um, the folio, these are like the right whales and the sperm whales. The octavo whales, these are... Um, narwhals, killer whales, and that. And then book three, the duodecimo whales are like porpoises and, and yeah, basically porpoises. So he just gives this interesting taxonomy and he's, he's using the scientific method to do it, even though he rejects apparently the, the idea that whales are, are, are mammals. He, he, he insists on calling them fish. Um, chapter 33 then does a kind of a historical look at the hierarchy of the ship. It's a chapter called the, the Speck Cinder, and it's kind of an analysis of, of whaling traditions, particularly the, the fact that there used to be a chief harpooner who had a lot of authority on the ship. And that's, that's his concern. Melville's always, it seems, concerned with hierarchies and, and labor and, and, and these kinds of questions. But he comes to this question of, of like the authority on the ship. Why do people like Ahab have so much power? Why are they essentially kings aboard the ship? And here's what he writes. Nor perhaps will it fail to be eventually perceived that behind those forms and usages, as it were, he sometimes masked himself, incidentally making use of them for other and more private ends than were legitimately intended to subserve. That certain sub 
sultanism of his brain, which had otherwise a good degree remained unmanifested through these forms, the same sultanism became incarnate in irresistible dictatorship. For be a man's intellectual superiority what it will, he can never assume a practical available supremacy over other men without the aid of some sort of external arts or entrenchments, always in themselves more or less paltry or base. This it is, that which keeps God's true princes of the empire from the world's hustlings, and leaves the highest honors that the heir can give to those men who become famous more through their infinite inferiority to the choice hidden hand of the divine in inert than through the undoubted superiority over the dead level of the mass. And this is about the whole question of authority. Where does authority come from, right? That there's a he starts Melville starts with the baseline of of a general equality, right? Um, sultanism, dictatorship must come from quote external arts and entrenchments. It can't be internal to one. There must be some kind of structures that prop up the these hierarchies. And of course, this is. Speaking, I think, to monarchy and other uh, the real political authorities out there, even mentions Nicholas Czar and others. So it's it's. Oh, we hear some more. This is good stuff. But when, as in the case of Nicholas Czar, the ring crown of geographical empire encircles an imperial brain, then the plebeian herds crouch at base before the tremendous centralization. Nor will the tragic dramatist who would depict moral indomitableness in its fullest sweep and dire swings ever forget the hint, incidentally so important in his art, as one now alluded to. So his question of where authority really can come from and it and it must come through some kind of delusion of the of the masses and this is right before we are going to get ahab's speech where he says we're not here for making money we're here for killing the white whale that's our main purpose and no one speaks up except starbuck against this it's it's accepted it, it's really a kind of a chilling discourse on on democracy and its impossibility that it seems hierarchies emerge, uh, even among people in states of equality. And if to be reminded of this, the next chapter is called The Cabin Table, where we see the dinner of the crew and the officers, and everything here is centered on, on Ahab and Ahab's desires. He dominates the room. He dominates the, the conversation. He dominates the agenda of, of the cabin room. It's a very undemocratic place. And all the hierarchies are reinforced and, and we're reminded of those hierarchies throughout the whole process of the dinner. In the same way that we saw how important dinner was in White Jacket in reinforcing certain traditions and hierarchies. So we get one more nice little scene before we get Ahab's grand speech. This is chapter 35 called The Masthead. And this is sort of special to whaling ships. You know, you always had people who would stand on the mastheads and be a lookout and things like that. But on the whaling ships, you needed people there all the time to look for whales, right? They're looking for the spouts and the blowholes and things. So that's that's their job. And so there's always people on the masthead. And it's it's presented in, in rather romantic language. A lot of people can kind of spend a lot of time there. It's, it's a bit dangerous because they're just kind of sitting on this little small pegs and things. Um, but it's it's kind of a nice place, and Ishmael seems to like being there. You know, a good watch there can be a bit romantic, and you kind of think. But if you do that, you're going to not be doing a very good job, right? So there's this tension between the work of being on the masthead, which is look for, out for whales, and then 
the the risk of one losing oneself into the into the sea and into daydreaming and all that into songs we're reminded of the scenes at the uh, up on the masthead in white jacket where you know jack chase and others are, are are having a conversation and telling stories with one another here we get much more of an internal meditation on on the ocean so then all that's left chapters 36 through 40 so five chapters essentially is all about ahab's speech his declaration of what his goal is and what the cruise by extension what the cruise go, cruise goal will be and there's that and then there's the aftermath of that from different points of view we get ahab's point of view reflecting on it we get starbuck we get stubs and we get the crew as a whole right so it's just wonderful to read you got to read this um, chapter if you read nothing else in this book read chapter 36. Um, it's actually presented as a scene in a play too all these chapters are uh, in fact chapter 40 is written essentially like a play this one actually has stage notes enter ahab then all again hierarchy is being reinforced here that ahab's the center of it quote it was not a great while after the affair of the pipe that one morning shortly after breakfast ahab as he was his wont ascended the cabin gangway to the deck there most sea captains usually walk on that uh, that hour's country gentlemen after the same meal take a few turns in the garden right so he calls the crew together sends them all collects them all and asks them pretty much straight straight away asks them what they know about the white whale what they know about moby dick and people have heard of them he's it's not an unknown creature out there and they 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 talk about it and then he goes into his revenge speech which it's like two pages here now it all comes really when he talks back to starbuck because the first person to kind of stand up and say we're not here to hunt one whale. We're here to hunt, you know, dozens and dozens and to fill up the ship with whale oil. And we're here to make a profit. That's Starbucks thinking, right? He says, quote, I am game for this crooked jaw and for the jaws of death too, Captain Ahead, if it fairly comes in the way of business we follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou gettest, Captain Ahab? It will not fetch thee much in the attack at market. Right, basically saying that even if we kill this whale and turn it into, you know, boil it down to the oil, it's it's going to be no better than any other whale, in terms of profit. And that's when he goes into his rant. Where um, says, "I'll chase them round Good Hope, round the Horn, round Norway Maelstrom, and round Perdition's Flame before I give them up." And on and on he it goes on for a long time and it's all talking straight to starbucks saying like you don't have an option in this you're in this with us and and this is going to be our mission and what's really fascinating about this chapter is how easily he gets the crew on board it's just a weird perversion of democracy in that you have an authoritarian figure who's been proven and, and written as an authoritarian figure since we first met him aloof indifferent but he's given the men a purpose and a mission and something they can they can actually feel starbuck doesn't understand it because it's not something he can like it's it's not coins in his hand right but that's not really what the sailors are attracted to you know starbuck can't say uh, can't stand up and say like we are going to make a lot of money if we do it this way that's not going to arouse the masses so it's it's this kind of mad passion it's like the build the wall kind of chant right as ridiculous as that plan is it's it's something that the people gravitate towards because it's something that they, I guess, understand or can visualize better than the abstractness of, of money. 
And when talking back to Starbuck, Ahab actually makes claim to the crew itself. But look ye, Starbuck, what is said in the heat, that thing unsays itself. There are men from whom warm words are small indignity. I mean not to incense them, the let it go. Look, see yonder Turkish cheeks of spottled tawn, living, breathing pictures painted by the sun, the pagan leopards, the unreeking and unworshipping things that live and seek and give no reasons for the toward life they feel. The crew, man, the crew, are they not the ones and all with Ahab in this manner of the whale? See Stubb, he laughs. See yonder Chilean, he snorts to think of it. Stand up amid the general hurricane, thy one tossed sapling cannot starbuck. And what is it, reckon it? Tis but to help strike a fin. No wonder's feet for Starbuck. What is it more from this one poor hunt than the best land out of all Nantucket? Surely he will not hang back when every foremast hand has clenched a whetstone. Ah, constraining Cece, I see. The billow lifts thee. Speak, but speak. Aye, aye, thy silence, and that voice is thee. So he's, you know, and Starbuck can only reply to this, like, God help me. <laughs> you know, he's, he's in on it. But he's able to call for the masses. So he's a kind of a demigod figure at this moment. But so it's a wonderful chapter. I, I it's, a, it's a lot of fun to read and it's, it's quite powerful. Um, and it's a wonderful critique of kind of populism and the, like the madness that democracy being, can be driven to. And then the, the, after this, we get different points of view. We get uh, Ahab in a chapter called Sunset, sitting alone, of course, alone after this. Uh, I don't know, are, the, are these populist demigods always at the end of the day alone? Thinking about it later on, uh, Starbuck is still dwelling on this question of democracy versus capitalism. Thinking, horrible old man, who's over him? He cries, aye, he would be a democrat to all above. Look how he lords over it all. Oh, I plainly see my miserable office to obey rebellion, worse yet, to hate with touch of pity. For in his eyes I read some lurid woe would shrivel me up, had it, had it, had I it. So, the white whale is a demogorgon. So when I read that, I was thinking, well, what is that? That's a D and D character, right? This is Wikipedia. Demigorgon is a deity or demon associated with the underworld and envisioned as a powerful primordial being, though his very name has been taboo. Though often ascribed to Greek mythology, his name seems to arise from an unknown copyist misreading in the commentary. Um, so that's that's a demigorgon. But this is Starbuck pondering, you know, the foolishness of their mission. But at the end of the day, he's forced to stay with Ahab. He's forced to to serve his his captain. Uh, we have a short little monologue then in chapter 39 of Stubbs, and Stubbs just kind of is laughing about it. And we, it's already been established that Stubbs is uh, a bit of a comic figure, a little happy-go-lucky sort of figure. So he just sort of laughs at the oddness of their situation. Then the final chapter I want to talk about is chapter 40. It's, it's also written like a play, and this one's f a formal play with characters followed by text and, and stage notes and things. It's called Midnight Forecastle. And this is the the day after or the night the night of Ahab's speech and the sailors and they we just get all this this international solidarity all these different people uh talking we got Tahitians and Tashtigo Chi I've got a Chinese we got a, a black kid named Pip we got a Lascar sailor Danish Portuguese you know he just mixes this up as much as he can 
Spaniards, Belfast, English. So we've got some Irish here. And, uh, and essentially a fight starts to to break out. But the fight there really doesn't go anywhere. I think it's a Spaniard makes a kind of racist comment towards Dagu. And, but a storm comes and it forces everyone to work together. So the, the crew's almost broken up along racial tensions, but the necessity of labor, the necessity to keep the ship going in the face of a storm re-solidifies the crew. So that's that. That's That brings us through chapter uh, 40, uh, about a third of the way through already. So... That's that. Um, so in the upcoming chapters, we'll, or in the upcoming episode, I will look at chapters 41 through 57. I believe we'll take us to the halfway point of the story. There, our focus will be on the Town Ho story, where they start to get messages about uh, the white whale. Um, and the, the whole theme of whiteness, why does whiteness matter? Um, what's, what's Moby Dick supposed to symbolize anyways? Um, so that, that's going to be the focus on the, in the center part of, of the novel. So through chapter 57, if you're reading along for next time. Uh, so let me know what you think of this section of, of Moby Dick. I, I rather like it. I'm really interested in the way he presents the crew, especially his international character. I love Ahab's speech, too. So it's something I've, you can just kind of read as a separate thing. Uh, the kind of the... I guess the imperial passion, the emotional passion of expansion versus the hard-headed kind of capitalist logic of Starbuck. That's always fun to look at, too, when thinking about, you know, the nature of America. So anyways, leave your own comments below, or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I'll see you next time with part three of my review of, of Moby Dick. At last there came a Yankee skipper Away You rolling river He winked his eye And he dipped his flipper